0: Guys, we're in the middle of the pandemic, and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state, and this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. Sign up today. Go to BetterHelp.com backslash SolvingHealthcare and get 10% off sign-up fees. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Cordial Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients and their families because inefficiencies, overwork and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified and just for everyone involved. Bum, 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 Quadcast Nation, we got another exciting episode for you. Yes, we got the one, the only, clinical psychologist, Dr. Hillary McBride. She is an author, speaker, podcaster, blogger. Her podcast is called Other People's Problems, where you get to listen in on therapy sessions. And the show is incredible. It's on CBC But the work it does to reduce the barriers and the stigmatization of mental health is incredible. It really breeds compassion. It really breeds empathy towards mental health. And I think the work she does on this is incredible. Regardless, we're on this episode talking about the mental health impacts of COVID, what she's seen throughout this pandemic. And I just, I think it, it it's validating to a lot of people, a lot of people struggling out there. And I, I think it's important to know that you're not alone. And in this episode, we talk about what she's been seeing. And, and I think it will allow many of us to have that empathetic lens and realize that, you know, it's hard times right now. But you know me, the optimist, we'll get through this, people. Uh, hopefully we're on the better half of this. Anyways, before jumping into it, I want to get you guys on SolvingHealthcare.ca backslash shop and find our stress management conference down to $9.99 full of knowledge. Just another tool to be able to use during these tough times hearing from licensed psychologists, including my wife, my wife, the one and the only beautiful Catherine Caramantang. So, yeah, check it out. SolvingHealthcare.ca backslash shop. One last thing, I apologize for the audio in the first few minutes of the episode. My audio connection was not tip-top, and unfortunately, we weren't able to make it as smooth as we'd like to, but I apologize for that. Regardless, y'all are going to love this. So without further ado, Dr. Hillary McBride. We have a very special guest today. This is Dr. Hillary McBride, whom I must say... I became a monster fan of after our appearance on white coat, black art. Mm-hmm. Or, or I call it black coat, black art. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, and uh, yes, I, I tackled a show oh, called other people's problems and we had to throw down. So Hillary, welcome to the show.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm just enthralled. The, the like, announcer-style introduction there, I was like, am I at a monster truck rally? Am I recording a podcast? I don't even care. I'm here for it.
0: You know, you know I thinking. Of, if this was the intro to your podcast, it would be a whole different level. Like, it would, uh, yeah, yeah it, it wouldn't work out very well, but
1: different it would set the tone for very different kind of content
0: oh my goodness so I love we'll, it. we'll get more to the you show in a second sure but yeah. you mentioned before we started my wife's a psychologist yeah yeah. and so i'm always curious like what was your story like what brought you into the world of uh, psychology and counseling oh. like is that a Pandora's oh, box? Oh, I
1: love it. No, it's okay. so good. It's, okay, good, good. You know, the reason why I was, I uh, just kind of exhaled when you said that is because we were having dinner with my parents. Saturday, my husband and I are having dinner with my parents Saturday night. And what you need to know is that every single person in my family is trained as a therapist in my family of origin, except for my husband who works in film.
0: <laughs> wow. And so I have so many ideas.
1: We, we will get into stuff. And we left the conversation. He's like, you know, it's not bad. It's not, I think this is not a value judgment, but your family will go in. Like (laughs) we talked about something and I thought we were done. And 45 minutes later, there were follow-up questions. Hmm. People were getting like, we were drawing a genogram. We were getting (laughs) detailed information about like collateral interviews on like, well, what did this person think? And so- it's uh, you know, my both my parents are therapists. Um, my brother's trained as a therapist, although he's not working as one right now. And so we have I think it was like in the fabric of our conversation growing up from the beginning dream analysis and interpersonal dynamics and naming things like you're allowed to set a boundary and people aren't necessarily necessarily going to like that, but it's okay for you to name the things that you need. And so in a way, I was really privileged to have access to this whole world of psychological resources. And there's a kind of like fluidity with it that I think might make me more comfortable going to certain spaces than other people and just kind of hanging out there. Like in a way, I I didn't try to become a psychologist, but it makes the most sense that I'm here now that I'm here, because when I'm with my family, I realize like, oh, this is the space that I've always hung out in right from the beginning, of, like right from when I was born. There's you know, accessing people's trauma and asking deep questions and expecting to be listened to empathically and wanting to do that for other people feels like the currency of affection in my family. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do find I struggle a little bit more in situations where people aren't interested in each other or don't want to listen empathically or move that's quick to advice people, giving. That's a
0: lot of situations.
1: <laughs> it's most situations.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: so. So I I guess in a way I came by it, honestly, although I took a few detours, I was um, a performance violinist at first and kind of, and then was really interested in being a midwife and found my way back to, back to psychology
0: and its practice. Back home. So you, I mean, by training, you're used to dealing with uncomfortable Conversations, but like you you had that within your fabric, I would I say. Eh? So yeah. yeah. No, it was just part of the landscape. No, that's Always. a skill for sure. So I thought we would we would jump into like many things these days, uh-huh. COVID. You know, we yes. have a lot of hype about how we are dealing mentally. I know anecdotally and seeing mm-hmm. a lot of uh my colleagues and their their families that uh, these are some tough times. And I thought it would be great place maybe to start, in terms of what you're seeing throughout the pandemic, whether it's early on or of late, late. Common themes that you're seeing amongst your clients right now.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, I I think there have been a few waves. There was like there was some cohesion in the reactions, although maybe maybe two prominent ones, like right when the pandemic happened. You know, people bewildered and kind of confused and afraid or other people kind of in denial or maybe feeling burnt out right away there was like there were some things initially and then it seemed like as we found our footing as a community some of the rules and regulations started to get into place i started noticing some more patterns but for sure anxiety i mean through the roof people who have and even those who haven't had them um obsessive compulsive tendencies and behaviors like rituals around hand washing, fear of germs, fear of exposure to people, some of the burnout that comes with not getting the way to discharge our stress that we normally do. Like um, my husband and I love to be really active and play sports and not having access to sports teams or like rec, rec centers, things like that to discharge energy I've noticed in myself and in other people. The burnout, the fatigue, the low-grade depression that set in, uh, missing out on social skill practice. I mean, we call them social skills for a reason because they're, they actually take maintenance and skill practice and development. And so I've noticed people talking about when they do get around other people feeling incredibly awkward, more social anxiety. Uh, and then, of course, there's like this latent, unresolved, sometimes named pervasive grief. That's extending into our communities, our collective, the way that we're avoiding grief and the trauma of the grief and the losses. I'm thinking about all the people who've lost someone from COVID or the people who've lost someone not because of COVID, but haven't had access to their grieving rituals, to their, um, their cultural and spiritual practices that would help them normalize and move through that in a relational way. And that does something to us. Like when we can't be together and metabolize our pain. That means that not only do we have this existing pain, but we have the pain of not being able to deal with the pain. And so I think it creates this kind of layer cake effect where it's really hard to get out of some of the patterns and ways of thinking that we can get stuck in.
0: Yeah. I I must say, Hillary, as a palliative care doc, I do have an extreme soft spot Mm -hmm. for when we saw how people weren't having that element of closure when losing a loved one, as you said, whether it is... COVID or non-COVID, it, 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 in a lot of ways, didn't matter because, you know, those rituals were, were being impacted. Um, but like, what a devastating scenario to so many unfortunate Canadians. Yeah. Uh, like, it was yeah. just, just tough to, to go through. So, you know, you mentioned, for example, you're, you're seeing patients with more generalized anxiety. Like to what extent are you saying? Like, is this something that you're saying? All oh, your there's a little bit more um, issues that you're seeing, or is this like is it pervasive? Is it like how much more of a mm. uh, of a problem do you see this uh, during the pandemic?
1: Yeah, well, it's it's so hard to make sweeping statements like that without also acknowledging that there are some people who, for whatever reason, and I could speculate momentarily if you'd like, but mm-hmm. are actually thriving. Yeah. And are like even even some people in my practice who have had like a little bit of skill, a little bit of therapy under their belt, big change happens and they go, Oh, now is the time to really drop into, you know, working on my childhood trauma or repairing this or learning how to do this for myself. Or wow, all those social skills or those anxiety regulation skills I've been working on for years. I get to use them and teach them to my friends. And now I feel like I am the one that everyone's going to for help because they're struggling for the first time. So there is there is within us as a species, the potential always in the face of adversity and distress to be resilient, to grow, to access resources, to make meaning. So I, I want to name that the potential for that is there and that it's also obvious in mm-hmm. some people more than others. But I would say that disproportionately um, moms are really struggling, particularly when we look at the division of labor and division of parenting responsibilities and households. Like it's not this way for everybody, but a lot of times moms are now working from home when the kids are at home. And so their work is suffering. So their professional identity is suffering and the stress of trying to work and parent. And like for any person who is a caregiver and trying to work full time, like th- I'm hearing people say over and over again, I am not doing well. Yeah, And maybe that's the way to articulate it instead of saying like, well, I mean, all the diagnostic criteria for generalized anxiety disorder or like, I'm seeing red flags for burnout. Like mm. the cultural language we use is like, I'm not coping. Mm. I'm not doing well. And we see the rates of alcohol abuse and alcohol use increasing. We see the rates of people... Accessing eating disorder hotlines for resources, for crisis lines, suicidality, all of that is up. So the, the statistics show us that people are not coping and those might be people primarily who don't have access to therapy. So aren't telling their, you know, I point at myself, therapist, I'm not coping. These are people who don't know where to go with that, who might fall through the cracks or feel like, well, even if I wanted to access therapy, I couldn't because I'm totally burnt out. I don't have any money. I'm not working. My kids are at home. It's just like, there's there's so many things that don't get named in the public sphere that are happening to people who are just suffering in these very quiet ways. But in my practice, in addition to the people who are also somehow thriving, there are lots of people who are just saying that I'm not coping.
0: The one question I, I had uh, regarding mm-hmm. the thriving piece, because that's a really oh, good yeah. point that we actually maybe overlook a little bit. Do you see like, is there a common thread amongst these people that that seem to be doing, like, almost like going the right direction versus oh, yes. <laughs> uh, going in yeah. the opposite?
1: Well, you happen to, I don't know if you know this, you stumbled right into this area of expertise of mine. I'm the uh, principal investigator on a research study, which is exploring phenomenologically the experiences of growth and thriving during COVID. So I'm heading no, up this entire research oh, project.
0: That's yeah. what Karen Mantek just just Drop the mic. There it is. Punch it out, boom. <laughs> I
1: love it. Whatever instinct inside of you <laughs> decided to ask, trust that. So yeah, there's this whole theory that we're developing that kind of looks at the integration of some of, I don't know if you're familiar with Frankel's work or logotherapy, existential analysis. Any of these people who in the psychotherapy world and in the psychological development world have said like, okay, how do we... How do we make sense of the fact that there are just some people who grow in the midst of this, in the midst of really hard things? And so we're borrowing a lot from theories that are already out there. But what we've found building a theory from the participants that we've been researching for months, like I think we started doing in-depth interviews in July and have loads and loads and loads of participants. One of the things that really stands out is that people had a disruption to their unhelpful ways of coping. So they were like, I'm a workaholic. And I can't work anymore. What do you do with that? (laughs) What do you and then it's like, oh, I can't even like go to the gym compulsively because I can't go to the gym. And all of a sudden I'm faced, I'm I have to confront some of these underlying patterns. And typically some of the unprocessed affect, the emotion that is with me, now that I'm not numbing it by using my You know, sports team or my workaholism or my, you know, engaging in whatever the behavior is. So the first thing is there's this huge disruption. But the second thing that's important to that is it wasn't so disruptive that the person couldn't function. It's not like they lost their house. Uh, It's not like they lost everyone that they love and know. So there was still some stability in the face of disruption. And people, for whatever reason, chose to stay with the discomfort long enough that it, got alchemized into some sort of meaning and new information about themselves. So people felt the discomfort, like, oh my goodness, I can't reach for the substances or I can't reach for the thing. I'm feeling all this stuff. It's really uncomfortable. But instead of finding a new way of numbing it, I'm just going to feel it. And in feeling it, I'm going to learn something about myself and realize some people are like, oh, I've been denying this part of myself by trying to numb the pain of what it was like to be disconnected from myself. But now I'm not disconnected and I can feel it. And here's who I am. Or, oh, I, I realized that I was worko- like being a workaholic because I didn't know how to have actual deep conversation or relationship with my kids and my, my partner. But being with them, I've learned how to do that. And now I have meaningful relationships and I don't ever want to go back to the way that I was before. Wow! So disruption discomfort, staying with it, leaning in, and then meaning making. So this overarching thing that we saw in the data was people have said like, there is something inside me that wanted to be released or there is a, there's a plan or there is something meaningful about suffering. You just have to look for it or you have to decide it. So there is a sense that there is, there is meaning Mm -hmm. or there could be meaning made of things that are difficult. And I think that might be the piece that allowed people to stay with the discomfort.
0: Wow. Man, yeah. <laughs> I, I, this is, uh, I got so much on this. Like this is- uh, Yeah, tell me. Is, no, no, this is beautiful. Cause you know, even within um, even within medicine in general, like, uh, like in my world, like you always want to be able to mm-hmm. tailor therapy. Um, like you want to give a therapy that's going to be most beneficial to somebody. And so to understand- psychologically what is it about somebody somebody that's going to make them thrive during these tough times and almost like can we give them the tools to thrive knowing knowing yes. what you know now can we give them the tools to thrive so that they're you know they stay functional their family stays functional they they could overcome and and just the the, the, the i guess what you're saying to me made so much sense because you know, like a lot of professionals like yourself, when it comes to underlying issues, it's always about like address it. Don't deal with mm-hmm. the bandaid. Stop right, running. Right. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. I never oh, yeah. I guess it wasn't intuitive to me until you said it that you were a lot of people were forced to sit with it, to yeah. th- really deal with like, what yeah. am I running from? And yes. um, but still, there's still some, I know you were, we mentioned, there's still some that you would think would be like, even when you're saying like they, 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 they found meaning within the suffering, like, you, does that come, does that, tell? do they know that right away? Or does, <laughs> yeah. is this something they're like, okay, yes, now I see it. Or, or like, you know what I mean? Right. Like, it's not something that I would think of most people being like. I'm going to find meaning in this right now. Right, right.
1: (laughs) Like you just wake up on a Tuesday and you're like, I know, I got it.
0: (laughs) I got this. Tuesday at 2 p.m. That's right. No, I'm feeling good. Yeah. But uh,
1: yeah, I think there's like a a number of people in the study came into the experience in COVID having some sort of meaning making framework. So whether mm. that was um, even agnosticism or atheism, the ability to say even within atheism, like, okay, there's nothing else going on here. So I have to self-determine what's meaningful. Mm-hmm. There is, even if you have a kind of nihilistic perspective to the world, some people will say, okay, so in the face of there being no absolute good or absolute God or absolute meaning, that means there's a lot up to me. And so it can, for some people, activate a sense of personal responsibility to go on the search for meaning. Mm-hmm. But then there are other people who come in saying like, I I think all things have the potential to help me learn about what is good and beautiful in the world. And so if you come into an experience of unrest, yeah, there's going to be some disruption and it's going to feel a little bit activating, but then that meaning, that foundation within which you live your life, the worldview you have is going to, at some point, catch up with you and say, okay, how does that apply here, Mm. even in the right now? But Mm. what I will say, kind of, if I move back to my clinical practice and expertise and what I'm seeing with my patients, is there are some people who, because of the specific way that the pandemic isolated them from other people, it gave them these, we call it in, we call them in the, the complex, PTS wo- complex PTSD treatment world, the emotional flashbacks or the somatic flashbacks to early experiences of neglect, early experiences of, um, of abuse or feeling socially isolated by caregivers There's a number of people I've been seeing who were kind of struggling with this kind of like latent unrest in their life, a sense of loneliness, a sense of unease. The pandemic hits, all of a sudden the the conditions under which they experienced their childhood trauma are recreated and they go, oh, oh, this is what was unprocessed. Wow, this is the thing that I'm reminded of constantly in my work life and in my social life. And now because I'm in therapy and because I know about it, I have the chance to actually work through it in a deep and meaningful way. So not that people are saying like, oh, well, thank you, um, coronavirus. You've given me my life back. I don't think there's anybody I know who is like grateful this has happened. Mm -hmm. But there are people who have said, wow, the conditions that I'm in have exposed the area that I needed to do work on.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And instead of running from it, I'm leaning into it. And my healing is deeper than it's ever been.
0: Wow. Wow. And and yeah. Yeah, no, seriously. Wow. <laughs> so like Hillary, maybe it's also good to get a sense from you. Like, how does it manifest when people aren't unprocessed? Do you know what I mean? Like is it oh yeah. Like when they're not dealing with their underlying issues.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that there's the specificity in the answer is probably complicated because there are a multitude of ways that are actually normalized typically in our culture. And It's person specific. So let's just say, um, you know, there are some people who might really engage in numbing behavior. So they're on their phone constantly. They're looking, they're, you know, doom scrolling. They're just kind of like scrolling, 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 nothing meaningful, engaging is happening. But then you take another person who's on the couch next to them, who's looking at their phone all day. And this is like deep connection because they're sharing deeply and it's the only way to reach out to their community. So I don't want to say in some sort of trite manner that phones are bad or that social media is bad. It's more about like, how do we use these normalized, socialized behaviors to get away from what is happening in our internal world? So there are some things that we might argue, this is again, my theoretical framework showing, but we might argue our kind of defenses, I use air quotes here, but our defenses are anything that takes us away from really feeling, really being with ourselves and being connected to the present moment and to people around us. So numbing behaviors, avoidance, uh, denial, substance use. And again, I'm not saying alcohol is bad, but we all know the difference between when someone's like, I need to manage today. So like pour me another drink versus like, oh, this is really enjoyable. I want to connect with you in this moment. Let's have a drink together.
0: Wow. No, absolutely. I I think it works it was worth mentioning just because I think a lot of us might be, you know, doing such behaviors to cope. Um, and, and, yeah. and sometimes we're not those around us or our loved ones aren't realizing like it's manifesting in X, Y, Z fashion uh-huh. addicted uh-huh. to the phone. Um, never like any kind of stress stresses, like the extremely overwhelming generalized anxiety. Right. Uh, you know, right. like I think it's, it bears, uh, you know, because I guess my ultimate what I'm trying to get at is recognition. Part of the problem is you need to, it needs to be recognized to realize it's a problem. And so, mm-hmm. uh, for those that um, you know see such behavior, you know, I'm hoping you know this show and the stuff we're talking about now can help them um, address right. it and acknowledge it and and, and move forward. Because you know, as you're talking about when you when you do recognize where your issues are and you deal with it head on. Like this is when you become, for lack of a better word, enlightened. You, you see, right. you, you see right. the, you see the world, yeah. you, yeah. you become closer to your authentic self. So, yeah, um, you know, this is all, uh, this is how it all ties together.
1: And that's, I think why we say awareness is the first step to change. Exactly. Like you're saying like these light bulb moments of like, Oh, I see something. This is a mm-hmm. moment of like enlightenment. The light is being shone on something that was invisible previously. And, mm-hmm then it's up to us to say, what am I going to do about it? Mm -hmm. And I think I want to name the, the, the message that's been passed around in the pandemic, which can also contribute to harm in some way, which is like, so be extra productive right now. Okay, good. Guess what? You saw your trauma go deal with it. Now you have to go dig in all the way or like, Oh, you got, you got some insight about yourself. Now, like run with it and beat yourself into transformation. And that's Mm -hmm. actually not like, that's not helpful for us either. And so I want to name that as we are seeing things about ourselves, sometimes the most healing, compassionate thing we can do is go, oh, self, you're coping. You have Mm -hmm. no other tools. Oh, you're doing the very best you can. And you have like, you don't have access to any other resources right now. No wonder you're doing that thing. And sometimes for some of us, we're like, oh, I know better. Okay, I can do something different. But sometimes if we are coming into awareness about our patterns, it is actually a step towards healing to not criticize ourselves about that, what the the new object of our awareness, but actually to move into tender care and normalization. Yeah, no wonder I'm doing that. This is a really hard time right now.
0: Acknowledging. Yeah. 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 Recognizing. Yeah. I like that. You know what I mean? Like just being, what do you call it? Um, like self-compassion. You That's know what right. I mean? That's exactly yeah.
1: it. Yeah. Boom.
0: Boom. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <There> you-
1: <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard this. some self-compassion. Boom. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Welcome to the quadcast. Oh no, yeah. No, 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 nothing's, uh, <laughs> nothing's off limits here. Um, maybe, you know, I mean, a lot of people, like, unfortunately the realities of our world is like a lot of, People that need therapy mm. don't have access or don't have the funds to be able to tap into yeah. it. So maybe whichever one you want to jump on first, but like ways to dig into your, your, your struggles or ways mm-hmm. to find meeting that maybe don't need. I'm sure, well, ideally there are times where you're going to need a professional for real, but maybe there are some kind of, Tips or strategies that people could do at home to try and address some of these concerns?
1: Yeah. Yeah. One thing I'm a big fan of is what we call bibliotherapy, which is just our fancy way of saying read some shit. <laughs> <laughs> <This is> like, <laughs> we we got to give everything like a therapeutic yeah. name <laughs> <Yeah>. bibliotherapy. <laughs> but, yeah. but really, like, there are books that will teach you how to do this. And because of how our brain, is wired, the part of our brain that holds the data that we collect from these like literary resources doesn't always translate through to the part of our brains that holds the pain. Mm. But sometimes it can begin with the bridge building. Like, usually our pain is created in relationships and we need relationships to be able to heal that pain. We don't get deep psychic wounding because we read one line in a book necessarily that made us like, <gasps> develop this dysfunctional belief about ourselves. So we can't necessarily undo that deep wounding with another line of a book, but it can get us close sometimes. So books about emotion regulation, the stress response, um, trauma, meaning, and suffering. I mean, there are loads out there that people could just start diving into. And simply the act of saying, I'm not going to turn Netflix on tonight, but I'm going to pick up this book that helps me access my feelings. Like that could be a good start, like these baby steps that take us in the right direction. So that's important. Um, I think mindfulness is really important because mindfulness is the mechanism, the the kind of muscle inside of us that helps us build that awareness that we're talking about, the awareness and acknowledgement. So slowing down, training our attention to be thoughtful, to notice what's happening. It helps us be more engaged with the world around us, but it also helps us be more engaged with the things that are surfacing inside. So they s- They stop happening more in the background without our awareness and more happen with us knowing what's going on. Like, oh, I just defended myself against that or like, oh, I deflected or, oh, I'm avoiding or I'm, oh, I'm numbing. Uh, So reading, uh, I think mindfulness is important. Having connections or relationships with people where you can go to those deep places and people ask you, like, how are you really doing? And you know that you can actually answer them honestly without judgment. And then sometimes we call this, I think it's called bystander therapy. It's a bystander therapy, I'll just the name it. for when, when we see someone else do their work and we go, Oh, whoa, that gives me courage to do mine. Or I learned mm-hmm. something about myself. So group therapy spaces can be really helpful for that 12 step programs. But then also, like, I think you mentioned at the top of the podcast to the podcast that I have called other people's problems, where you listen to people, the patients that I work with and myself do therapy. And the benefit of that is there are some things that are just universal about pain that even if we've decided like, this is how I'm different from you, or that's not the exact way that my anxiety manifests when we are with people who are in a healing space, it does something to us. I think if we are open to it and we allow it, it invites us to think how am I like them and how can I learn from them? And it undoes the aloneness that we feel so much right now.
0: Wow. Because that to me, I'm glad you mentioned it because we're going to jump on the beauty of your show, but you just articulated it so well, like listening to, so, so you'll hear in the intro, just in case I didn't do it in the intro, but um, like you literally were listening in on a therapy session Yeah, with with you and you, the, the empathy you feel, you know what, you're hearing these mm-hmm. people's uh, problems, you the awareness of what Uh, people are going through the compassion that it builds Mm -hmm. when you hear people struggling through X, Y, Z, like, this is the beauty of the show. Like it really is. No, like, I mean, there's a reason why you're on CBC dog. Like it's, it's (laughs) (laughs) it's like real, but Mm -hmm. because I I was having a tough time, like putting on like, like, why, what is it that's making this so magical? But it's, as you put it, you're in that seat, you're, you're feeling it. You're, you're, you're you're feeling the, you can't help to feel empathic. It's like, was that like a, one of the drivers? Like what, what, what got you to do this?
1: Oh my goodness. You know, I, I'm the lucky recipient of a long line of people who passed up the opportunity because actually it wasn't my idea. <laughs> it was uh, <laughs> Jodi Martinson's the producer and she's won Emmys for her, her work as a producer. And she had this idea. She's like that therapy is not actually what it's portrayed as on TV why, why don't we have any more accurate portrayals of the therapeutic process? It's not just a person sitting there kind of like Neo-Freudian with a clipbook or a clipboard writing down notes about you know, mom issues. Like there's right. gotta be so much more that goes on in real therapy. And so really there was a, a number of years, many, many months um, that we and several other therapists went through the process of negotiating ethics and how do we do this in such a way that really supports people's autonomy to choose to be involved in a project, but protects their confidentiality. How do we do that? And this was before Esther Perel's show had come out. And so it was really like it had never been done. And so we spent lots and lots of time. And there was a number of other therapists who at the time I think were interested, but it felt probably too much like a risk where they had clients who said no way. And for whatever reason, I was able to to keep going with the project and it ended up being this thing that now I do in my practice. But I think for me the motivation was in the Canadian Psychological Association principles of practice and code of ethics we have four there's you know responsible caring and respect for the dignity of persons and making sure that we are honoring the relationship and there's all of these things that say essentially like just don't don't be bad at your job like really do like care for people well but then there's this fourth principle that we almost never talk about and really doesn't show up in the public sphere As being as essential to our practice and our profession as it should be. And that's principle four, which is our responsibility to society. That as healthcare providers, it's not enough for psychologists or therapists to sit in their offices individually and think that they're changing the fabric of the social stigma that perpetuates and creates mental illness in the first place. So for me, thank you. Yes. For me, it felt like an, an act of justice for the mental illness community, for the disability community to say the things that we have been told you cannot talk about, we are going to talk about. And we're going to talk about them in such a way that tells you that any of the stories that you have heard that have told you, you have to keep these parts of your life silent. Those stories, they don't work anymore. They're keeping us apart from ourselves and from each other. And so when I had this opportunity, I was like, I have to, I have to.
0: Man. I, I get goosebumps because Whoa. we are yeah. on this show, this platform. We're all, I mean, we call it change in the boogie. We're talking about how do you create change? How do you yes. amplify? You know what right. I'm saying? And right. this is exactly what I'm talking about. Being that advocate. Mm. No, it's because, okay. law lot of psychologists are going to get mad at me right now for a second, but I live with one. So I know you guys yeah. are sh- often shy. You guys yeah. should be at the, you guys should be leading the charge mm-hmm. right now. Harry, uh, COVID man. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Like there's a, as we talked about a ton of people struggling families couples, individuals with all the stuff that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. This is the time to, to shine. There's a point during the pandemic when I was seeing more overdoses and substance abuse yes. issues than I was seeing the COVID. And still, I would say arguably it's, this is uh, we're doing this March 8th. It's pretty close. Um, and we're not talking about, this is the time for you people to lead, mm-hmm. to advocate, be that voice mm-hmm. for the people that can't have that voice for themselves, and like, what a time! So this is why I'm I'm saying the beauty of this because when you hear these conversations, and that person might be like, you know what, this is what I'm going through. Mm. Yeah, I, this you see that the power of opening up, the, the power of like destigmatizing this. Maybe I'm going to talk to somebody. Maybe I'm going to, yes. uh, or just be open with my myself and address some of these issues that are that are holding me back. You know, I I just think it's such an important thing because I'm sorry, I'm going on a soapbox a little bit, Hillary. But the thing is, even in my world, in the intensive care unit, my world in palliative care, when you are having, when you're struggling with mental illness, it affects everything. Mm. Everything. Your Mm -hmm. ability to get stronger, the ability to get out of the hospital, the ability to get out of bed, that Mm -hmm. motivation ain't there. Like it's 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 a. The opposite of amplifier, it's uh, it it holds it holds a patient back. So these are the things why I'm like people ask me why I talk about this frequently. It's because it's a big deal. It really is. (laughs) Otherwise, I wouldn't be chatting about it so hard. Anyway, so I I didn't need to go off on my. Oh no! uh, I'm
1: so glad that you did. I'm so glad that you did. And what I'm loving in the conversation right now too is the way that um, your area of specialty and my area of specialty allow us to see a person more as a whole, mm. like when we look at our disciplines, I mean, I think it's changing in terms of how our training programs are going. Like you'd probably know more about mental health now than, you know, palliative care docs from 50 years ago. And I probably know more about psychophysiology than clinicians did, you know, 50 years ago. But when we are seeing the the self is compartmentalized, even the person is compartmentalized and not treating or making room for the whole person. When I'm not asking about behavior or when I'm not asking about health or health practices or of, um, I'm not consulting with physicians, then I'm missing something. And if we're not asking in hospitals about mood and motivation and mental health and what does it mean to suffer, then we're missing something that we need to be seeing the person as whole.
0: I think Amen. that's part of the antidote. Amen. That is the mm-hmm. antidote. I can't tell you how many times, man, Mrs. X, she's asking for more and more pain meds. She's like basically delirious and and, and still complaining about pain. I'm like, you sit down with her. Sit down. What's the root of this? Get down, mm-hmm. sit down. Let's have the, a discussion on the root of this. Is it mm-hmm. her fear of dying? Is it the fear of abandoning her loved ones? We got. You got to put on your holistic hat, your investigational right. hat. And represent at this time, Um, because I'm sorry, but like how often that this the solution is there is because the lack of holistic, uh, approaching the patient holistically, um, really uh, doesn't allow you to get to to improve care. Which
1: is why I think I'm I'm really fascinated by the use of and the introduction and the permission from Health Canada to use psychedelic substances for those in end of life care with. Or with terminal diagnoses that Mm. the ability to say like, oh, your experience of life at the end of your life matters too." Mm. that your your perception of what it means to die, your anxiety, your fear about that, how you care for yourself. All of that needs to be considered here. Mm-hmm. There's some really cool. I don't know how much of that there's is being talked about in your lots. Yes. Well, I mean,
0: we're do, I'm doing a show with Mike Hart. I don't know if you have heard of him. No, but he's um, he's, he's mostly fam- uh known for his uh, uh cannabis use, for, um, uh, like ordering cannabis for patients oh, okay. for various reasons. But he's also okay. Uh, big into the psychedelics and in fact one of our researchers is is using doing a psychedelic study for end-of-life right. care I think it's for specifically like for grief no what is it uh, complicated grief I think or something along right. those lines uh, regardless I think it's coming to the forefront and you know as far as I'm concerned whatever tools we can do to to yeah. help achieve some Improvement in quality of life and and quality of the dying process. I'm all for it. Yeah, I'm yeah. with you. I'm 100%. with you. Can I ask? This might be a personal,
1: maybe it's a personal question. Yeah, yeah you yeah. ready? Okay.
0: Yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> uh, I, I meant to ask you. Like, do you practice some of these things? Like, say, for example, in, like in terms of your mind, uh, mindfulness practice. Oh yeah. Yeah, and like, what does that look like for for Hillary?
1: Oh my gosh, I love this question. Good. Um. I do. I practice mindfulness um, generally before I start every session or in periods of transition at the start of my day, at the end of my day, at the end of my work day, first thing when I wake up in the morning, last thing at night. I think we think it has to look like this 20 minute, 40 minute sit where you're going into some transcendental plane. Like for me, I'm usually just checking in with my body and I'm noticing like, Hey body, are you giving me any information? that I need to help me be more present here. Like, do I need to shift? Am I hungry? Do I need to use the bathroom? Am I tired? Do I need to slow down because I'm working too hard? And I just, what I haven't shared with you is that I had, uh, I had an eating disorder history for a long time, it was in and out of inpatient and outpatient care for a number of years. And for me, the journey to be in my body has been a long and painful one. And so to be able to check in with myself regularly and to trust that my body is wise and that my body is not actually out to get me, but is the place where life happens has been this huge flip for me in terms of being able to feel like I have so many more resources available to me. So mindfulness and these practices of just tuning in, going, oh, body, what are you telling me? Has meant that there have been times I felt restless at the end of the day. And like, this is all keyed up. And I'm like, oh, that's how my anxiety shows up. But I know that anxiety is not a feeling. It's the check engine light. So it's the check engine light saying, hey, go inside. What's unfinished? What needs attention? Or like another analogy is like the smoke alarm. It's not telling you that there's a fire right where the alarm is. It's telling you that there's something else that needs your attention. So when I feel that buzzing in me, because I am doing mindfulness, I'm like, oh, I need to metabolize that. That's some keyed up energy that's telling me something feels left over from the day. So I'm gonna go be in movement, or I'm gonna go do some yoga, or I'm gonna ask for a hug to regulate my nervous system. So for me, that has been, I mean, that that has been a real adjustment in the pandemic because a lot of the things that I'd previously done to regulate myself went out the window. And I have too been learning, like, okay, what are the new rhythms that I need? How do I take care of myself? How do I? how do I do this? Like I, I was in a quite a serious car accident two years ago and I was recovering, still having some cognitive symptoms from that, from a head injury. And so I was not supposed to be on the computer all day long. And then all of a sudden the pandemic hits and I'm staring at zoom for eight hours a day. And my brain is feeling fried. Like that was a lot for me. And so realizing like, Oh, I need to space my appointments out and I need to go for a walk and look into the distance and I need to close my eyes. And all of that I was able to do because I, I kept a really diligent practice of checking in, like, how am I doing? How am I actually doing? How will I know if I'm not OK? What will I do if I find that I'm not OK? And I think sometimes as clinicians, we certainly mics I'll speak for myself the awareness that I have all the tools in the box comes with an added layer of shame, if I'm not using them, or if I'm not doing well, it's like, oh, if I can't do this, then who can do this? <laughs> oh my goodness. Like if, <laughs> you know, the, the adage, the physicians to heal thyself, like how, what do I do if I am not doing okay? And the pandemic at the beginning really was a wake up call to going, okay, this is a chance for me to lean in even more to the things that I know and root myself deeper into the practices that I tell everybody else to do. And the beauty of it is that it actually helped me. And so I I have more confidence now and ever that more, more confidence now than ever that being mindful, engaging in my spiritual practices, uh, checking with my body, feeling my feelings, having close relationships where I can tell the truth about how I'm doing are the things that have been medicine for me. Wow.
0: Um, Yeah. First off, I'm I'm really glad that you're, Doing better from oh. uh, you know the eating disorder perspective,
1: thank you. And Yeah,
0: as well as uh, uh, the uh, the accident. And Thanks, thank you. All of the above obviously have a ton of challenges um, mm-hmm. associated with it, but um, I just think it's a it's a great. You made there's a lot of healthcare providers that listen to this show and mm-hmm. and that truth I think you said about uh, you know to to be able to take care of actually I'm not sure if that's really the way to say it. I was going to say taking care of taking care of ourselves before we could take care of others but that's not really what you're saying you're saying um, physician heal thyself I guess it kind of is, is along the same lines of like we need to be ideally in a good place to be able to help our others and so you know one of the what I really like to hear from you is how active you are in terms of trying to make sure you're sound, you know, like with mm. the, in terms of the mindfulness, because I do wanna, my mindfulness practices, as maybe, as you mentioned, it's not, you know, sitting in a corner humming for 20 minutes. It's even, if I'm standing in line for coffee, just either thinking about my breath or, right, you know, right. just observing, just trying to take the situation in, not trying not to be on the phone. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the one that I'm, just, I'm trying not to get personal on the show, but the one thing I think it, it, what you mentioned that did seem to resonate more is like, listen to the body too. Sometimes, like I think personally, I'll, I'll ignore. All signs yeah. in my body. I'm like, it's time to hustle. I don't care if my heart rate right. is 148. Shove <laughs> it's it <cool> down. Time. <laughs> <Yeah>. ignore <laughs> Shove it. Shove it down. Yeah, no. Put exactly. Put it into
1: this ball of rage in your yeah. stomach that festers 20 years later, but don't feel it now. <laughs> Whatever you do, do not feel it
0: now. <laughs> no feelings. I'm just Punch my punching bag. That's Run right. through this wall. But uh, right. no, I, I think. Um, no, hearing you say that it's just an, a healthy reminder to mm. you know these are these are tools that are not only going to be beneficial uh, for my for myself or, or or whoever's listening, but also to the the people that we'll be taking care of mm. uh, who are more in tune with them and um, more empathetic and more mm. connected. Um,
1: yeah, well, yeah. maybe this gets back to kind of what you were saying about the podcast, which is that I think. I think there's something significant for those of us who help others to realize that we are not exempt or above or beneath the care that we offer other people, mm. that so many of us are so good at setting the table for experiences of care for others, but do that at the cost to ourselves. And a really big shift for me in terms of my well-being in the pandemic, but also in the last number of years has been to say, I am no less valuable of all of the care and attention that I'm offering other people. And I'm also not above that. There's like, I'm not so, so super mensch that I am exempt from deserving the care and attention that I'm telling other people that they need. And I think what that does on a political, on a spiritual, on an existential level, is it brings everything into alignment with everything else. It says that we're actually all human together. And instead of seeing power dynamics, not that we ignore those, but instead of like playing into them, we see the thing that unifies us all, which is that we're all human. We're all doing our best. We all want to be loved. We are all wired to try to survive. Um, And as much as we like to think that we're different from each other, we all, yeah, we we all want to be loved. We all want to be okay. We all want to be cared for. (laughs) And that's it.
0: I mean, this, that was really well put, Hillary. And uh, it gets back to what you also mentioned, too, about connection. And I mm. think um, if there's anything the pandemic has, has at least, you know, in my humble opinion, has really put a lens on is this is a part of our well-being. Is It truly is yeah. being connected to, like, uh, that? being a human being. This is essential. This is what right. we were made from is having mm-hmm. that, that contact and, and and that value of connecting with others and so um you know whether as you put it someone that you could share and be open with whether it's someone you could share a laugh with um uh, as you're watching Arrested development just reference <laughs> to our uh black art black doc but
1: was like, <laughs> I was like, "What? that was an oddly specific reference. No,
0: yeah, that was a forced, uh, sequitur. Oh my God. That was horrible. I loved it. <laughs> it,
1: was the, it was the, it might've been the best thing that happened in this entire interview. Yeah, I don't know. Might be
0: a bad, Yeah. You gotta go swinging. I go, sw- I swing a lot. You know yeah. what I mean? You swing enough. You hit one out of the park. I appreciate park. that. I yeah. appreciate that. Um, yeah. but, um, yeah. yeah connection no,
1: it, wherever we find it.
0: Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I, and that unfortunately depending on where you're living right now it could be uh, could be challenging but it's you know it, it looks differently during different times i guess you know like mm-hmm. uh whether it is through that whatsapp text group or zoom call or you go outside and go for a hike with the, uh, with your friends you know yeah you said yeah. it i said it you said um, it i said it okay want to be totally respectful of your time
1: Uh, thank you
0: any last parting thoughts on like i'm thinking about the struggling moms are you like Mm. the way you mentioned like i hear this Uh, unfortunately frequently the uh, i'm just not well i'm not doing well like it's this is a tough time you know i mean like i'm hearing that religiously right now yeah any kind of parting tips hillary that you, you you think that might be of value to those voices
1: Oh, I mean, my, my instinct is to say, of course, you're not doing well, you're telling the truth. Mm. And it is so okay for you to name that. And that won't put you in any more danger. Uh, That doesn't make you a liability. Uh, That doesn't make you less valuable as a human. It's not a moral failure. And with that, I am sure that your resilience is on display somehow and i hope that you have eyes to see that as well and not as the ex- at, at the exclusion of how you are suffering and how it is hard but as a way to remember that you your capacity is so much greater than how you feel in this moment and that you are held by your ancestors you are held by your community you are held by the wisdom inside of you that even is there when you don't feel like you can access it and that both of those are true at the same time that you are resilient and that you're not okay. And there's room enough for them both.
0: God damn! That is the most poetic, beautiful. That was, I don't know. That was just like oh. a great place to end that. Oh, oh, my God. That was just, you nailed that out of the park. Oh. I'm sorry. I swung. Um, yeah, you swung. You taught swung. me how to
1: swing today. Oh, I swung. my God.
0: You swung okay. and that was, that was, thank you. I, I don't know how you could put, put that in any better words. But, uh, wow, I, Hilary, I got to thank mm. you. This was amazing.
1: Ah, it's such a blast. Tried to line
0: this up for a while, but this was definitely worth it. I I could see the emails thrown down now. (laughs) Like you, you better get that Dr. McBride in the mix next time. You know, she's she's uh, full of game. But honestly, Mm. uh, it it means a lot to me and the team. And uh, you're a special soul, and you're doing some amazing work. And you're
1: Mm. gonna continue
0: to change that boogie. So. Thanks so much for agreeing to do this. And I can't wait till we get to dance again.
1: Oh my gosh. What a, what a treat it was to be with you. Thank you for the invitation and your kind words. Yeah, I'm just feeling elated as we end such a such a bright spot in my day to connect with you.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much. Qualcast Nation, tell me that wasn't fresh. That was an incredible session with Dr. Hillary McBride. Please follow us on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter at Quadcast. Leave any comments at quadcast99 at gmail.com. Leave that five-star rating, people. You know we need it. Helps with the visibility of the show. And for us to change that boogie, we need to stretch out. Need to stretch out, baby. Anyways, thanks again, guys. It means a lot. And everyone, stay safe. Peace.